Father, thank you for this time in the Word. We need it. We need our souls replenished. We need truth to cause us to look up and follow you even during difficult times. And so we thank you that you've given us a perfect manual, a perfect Word of God, inspired by you yourself, Lord, the Spirit of God, and breathe life into the Word. And doesn't need to be added to or taken away. We can just trust it completely. So we pray this evening as we look in your word that it would encourage us, challenge us, strengthen us, cause us to keep running, keep fighting, stay in the race. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage I've chosen tonight is, has not been picked for any other reason but my own discouragement. Uh, it's a passage I've been going to the last month or so quite a bit, just on my own personal thoughts and wrestling through things myself. And, and of course, the events of the last week, um, of lots of different things that have happened, have caused me to look there. So I want to make sure you know that I've not chosen this passage for any other reason, that, but I needed to study it myself and needed to be reminded of its truths. And I I hope you will find encouragement too. The passage is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Let me read that to you, and then we'll look at a few points here tonight. Verse 12, it says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the, God, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, four thoughts this morning, this evening, as we look at this text. First, Paul's personal experience with the grace of God in the gospel. First, we see his personal experience with, with the grace of God in the gospel in this. And you may ask the question, why did Paul have to experience this grace in such a way, such, such a phenomenal way as he reminds us of, of the abundance of God's grace? Well, he was a sinner just like anyone else. But he saw himself as the foremost and he knew that he himself could not restore himself or be right with the Almighty God that he was raised with. He is God of Israel. He would have been raised with that. And so one of the things that's unique is you just look at the first three, uh, three verses. He says, first of all, he needed the experience of the, God, the grace of God because it had to be God who would strengthen him. Notice that in verse 12. He could not strengthen himself. He needed, he needed the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, the Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. Strength has to come from the Lord, and particularly the grace of God. Notice he needed mercy. Look at verse 13. He needed mercy. He said, in the middle of the verse, he said, Yet I was shown mercy. There's not a sinner on the planet, not anyone here in this room or listening online, 
who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't know they need mercy. When you're guilty, you need mercy. And here our Lord supplied mercy, abundant mercy for Apostle Paul. Notice also that he knew that that Christ alone had to be received through faith and love. And that had to be a miraculous work of God. Paul was trying to kill the church of Jesus Christ. That was his goal. It was called the way back in that first century. And his whole goal was destroy Christ's church. He, he hated Christ. He was glad he was crucified. He didn't believe in the resurrection. And so he needed to be reminded that his faith was, was God-given. It came through Christ alone. Look at verse 14 with me. He said, the grace of our Lord was more abundant to me with faith and love which are found, and you could even put in there from our own theology, in Christ alone. He knew that he could not muster up that strength. Well, this resulted in Paul being put into service, and I like this phrase, and I have to come back and remind myself of these things from time to time. See, Paul was entrusted with the gospel because Jesus enabled him. Not because he enabled himself or wanted to be in some kind of leadership or some, something. He knew that, that the Lord Jesus Christ in, enabled him. In verse 12 is Paul's way of saying, I want to thank my Lord and Savior for enabling me to be in service for him. Because without him, I would have never been there. What a great reminder. And Paul was enabled for this ministry because he was counted, the Bible says, counted faithful for Ministry or service is probably the better word here. Faithfulness made Paul ready to be used by God. I want you to hear that again. Faithfulness, because of that love and faith and that mercy and that grace that he received, made Paul ready to be used by God. I think we often see our Christian service as maybe a matter of volunteering. We're helping out God in some way, or helping out the church, or the pastors really want you to do this. Yet as Christians, in regard to Jesus and his church, we are not volunteers. We're servants. It's a big difference. If you're a slave, and they said, look, you don't have to be a slave anymore, you can just be a volunteer. And they would go, oh, I volunteer to leave. <laughs> See, we're servants. And we delightfully are duty-bound to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Master and our Lord. And that kind of faithfulness comes from the Gospel. It comes from knowing Christ, knowing what He did for you, knowing the depth of your sin, being, being captured by His glory. There's, there's just no other way you can muster up faithful servant, uh, servanthood if it doesn't come from that. You'll burn out, you'll tire, you'll fall away. All kinds of things will happen. Notice the verse says, Paul says that he, God, considered me faithful. What a term. God considered me faithful. So you don't have to be the smartest to be faithful. Dumb as a post, they used to say. It's an old cowboy term. Got it from an old cowboy movie. Why are you using me, God? Dumb as a post. You don't have to be the most talented or the most gifted See, faithfulness is something, is a real, very down-to-earth term here, the way he's saying it. Each, each of us can be faithful in the place God placed us. What does he have for you to do? 
Are you faithful there? And is it driven because of the gospel? But if it, if it does, if it's from the grace of God, that's what will make you faithful. Say, but how, I don't want to not be faithful. Someone say, I don't, want to, I don't want to not be faithful. If it's from the grace of God, if it's motivated by the grace of God, if it's gospel-driven, you will be faithful. If it's something on you, and you're strengthening up and solo bootstrapped yourself trying to get through life, you might be faithless over time. Many people wait to be faithful. They'll tell themselves, I'll be faithful when such and such happens. I get enough money, I get enough this, I get, uh, I get into a relationship or whatever. There all kinds of things people come up with. That's so foolish. And it's such a rejection of the gospel. The gospel takes us where we're at. The gospel takes us with God, the way God made us and designed us, single, married, um, you know, able to teach, able to speak, able to hold on to a broom. It doesn't matter. He takes us where we are. The gospel takes us and makes us faithful. We should be faithful right where we're at. If we have experienced the grace of God, faithfulness in small things. So many writers and great men of the faith, preachers down the line have said that term. Be faithful in the small things. It's usually in the small things where you begin to trip up. We're good at hiding the big things, aren't we? It's the small things that God wants us to be faithful. Notice in verse 12, it says, putting me into ministry or, could, or, or service. It could be translated ministry, but I think the better word here is service. I think the reason why is the word generally means giving of a kind of a charitable aid to something you're you're preparing meals. It's, it's used of all kinds of wonderful things. Somebody serves somebody by giving a meal. or um, it's, It was defined to the disciples with Jesus as the example, not to be served, but to serve. It was that kind of idea. The Greek word itself carries nothing high or, or spiritual about it. It just means to work hard and serve. That's what faithful people do. If you've ever spent time with missionaries who live in villages and live in places much different than we have the blessing of living down here, so often you just want to go, thank you for being faithful. They're just faithful. They go out and they serve in ways that other people have not had the desire to do. Yet, for this former blasphemer, Apostle Paul here, former persecutor of God's people, he said it was a great honor. He says it's a great honor to be put into service. Isn't that interesting? Spurgeon said this about this passage. He said, after Paul was saved, he became a foremost saint. <laughs> the Lord did not allot him to a second place, second class place in the church. He had led, he had led him to be, a, uh, excuse me, he had been a leading in sinner, but now God had made him leading as a believer. Therefore, he said, I will save you and I shall remember, I, I shall not remember your wickedness as a disadvantage to you, but I shall count you as faithful, putting you into service and into the apostleship even, so that he who is not a wit, he used that word, behind the very chief of the apostles, you, you'll not be behind them, even though you called yourself the least. Verse 13 says, 
because Paul's quick to bring this up, even though I was formally a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. See, Paul's past unconverted life did not disqualify him from serving the Lord. So God's mercy and grace was so rich enough to cover his past and enable us to serve the Lord. I mean, we just sang some songs, you know, just living in darkness and, and there was no light and no hope. And then the Lord came to us and appeared to us through the scriptures and somebody witnessing to us. And, and now all we have is Christ. Paul would sing that with us, wouldn't he, tonight? We should never feel as though our past pre-converted state is not able to be used of God. If you're here tonight and you've been saved and you're ashamed of your past, you should learn from this. We'll see a little more in a minute how desperately wicked the Apostle Paul was. And yet God made him out to be a trophy of grace. When you think about the context here, maybe Timothy Timothy wanted to leave Ephesus. Every pastor's known that feel that tension things get difficult and maybe he felt that he couldn't fulfill the ministry there in Ephesus maybe he felt unworthy and incapable of the work remember he's following the apostle Paul in that ministry and these words from Paul were there to assure Timothy if there's anyone unworthy it should be me Timothy (laughs) you don't think you have the grit and the stuff or you've got a problem or sinful things in your life that you're trying to deal with look at me look at me stay stay in the battle the little phrase is interesting because i acted ignorantly in unbelief well ignorance and unbelief never are an excuse for sin no one will stand before god and say well i just didn't know no god wrote it on every person's heart his, his glory is displayed in the heavens day after day. Romans 1 makes that clear that everyone knows there's a God. But they do invite us, this ignorance and unbelief that we had before salvation, they do invite God's mercy, don't they? I think that's what's unique here. Because sin in ignorance and unbelief of, in an unbeliever, Paul says, makes one less guilty than a believer who knows they're sinning. And I think that's what he's after here. He says, look, in my unconverted state, I did not know Jesus was God. I didn't know he was the Messiah. I was taught differently, so I I reacted against him. I did all that. And he says, I did this in ignorance and unbelief. He's not excusing himself. But I think what he's doing is he's pointing to the more guilty of when we do know a Savior, we do know what he did, and yet we willfully step into sin. James says, James chapter 4, verse 17, therefore to one who knows the right thing to do it and does not do it to him it is sin. You get into the warning passages of Hebrews and they really get pointed, don't they? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, and these are passages, are warning. They're not saying loss of salvation. I know there's all kinds of people try to teach this loss of salvation. They're warning. And he says it this way, Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, he says, for In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gifts and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit, you say, well, what does that mean? That means they were right up close against seeing God's work in your life or mine or somebody else's. 
They have tasted the work of God in somebody. They've seen the change. This could be a husband of a saved wife or vice versa. This could be someone who was raised in church and you've ministered to them for years and yet in this end they just reject it all. Verse 5 says they have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. They've, they've heard the Bible preached. They've heard of what God has in store for the future for those who believe. And then have fallen away. They've rejected all that. And the Bible says this. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You say, well, what does that mean? It means that they look at that and they go, ah, I really don't need Christ. I'll somehow get in. I'll somehow make it. It just sloughs off the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've tasted. They've, they've had the blessing. God let them taste the goodness of God, and yet they refuse it. See, this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about those who, who, who weren't in ignorance, who weren't in unbelief, but come to God, know the truth, hear the gospel preached, raised in Christian homes, so forth. You can go on and on, and yet reject it. But Paul now knows the grace of God. And this is what comes out of him. And this is why you go back to passages like this, because we need to be reminded. We know the grace of God. And it captures us, doesn't it? The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant to him. It was more than what he could ever need. He looked at his sinful life and he said, your grace is way more than I, I could ever use. You gave to me was not Paul's ignorance that saved him. It was the exceeding abundance grace of God, and he knew it. He knew it. He knew God had given him favor and saved him. And it was impossible for him to fall away. Second thought, Paul proclaims the weightiness of his sin and the need for saving grace. Look at verse 15 with me. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ, Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. This beautiful phrase, a trustworthy statement deserving of all or full acceptance here is the idea of, of this is a special important announcement. <laughs> you know he says that phrase five times in the pastoral epistles. Everyone who ever has the opportunity to teach, should look at every one of those. This is what he does. And, and here's his statement. Here's what's trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Is that not a trustworthy statement? <laughs> Our eternity rides on it, doesn't it? That that's what Jesus Christ came to do. The Bible does not say that he came to condemn sinners. Because then we all go to hell, Right? He came to save us. That's his reason he came. And Jesus came to save sinners, not those living under some illusion of their self-righteousness that they can add Jesus to who they are. Jesus said, look, I came to the sick, not the healthy. Too many people running Christian circles think they're the healthy. I'll tell you how bad our sickness was. It's terminal. It was hellbound. And that's who Jesus came to save. And see, Paul knows this. And since Jesus came into the world to save sinners, this is the first necessary qualification to be a child of God. You want to be a child of God? You have to be a sinner. 
isn't that just contrary to what the world thinks? They think, well, see, I better, okay, if I'm going to go to heaven, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and nope, the first qualification is you have to be a sinner. If you want to go to heaven, you have to be a sinner. We also see the great danger in taking the terms sin and sinner out of the conversation today, don't we? It is true. So many churches have just abandoned use, the use of the word. I don't know how they even read their Bible. Maybe they don't even use their Bible when they teach. To them, it seems some kind of offensive thing. But not to us. See, we're in the end of the verse here, right? We are with Paul. We say, among whom I am the foremost of all. Paul's claim to be the chief of sinners here was not an expression of just prideful, false humility. He believes it, doesn't it? And I believe Paul generally felt his sins made him even more accountable to God than others. You might say, well, aren't we all equally sinners? I think it's easy to say that. And there's a certain truth to that, right? We're all, we're all sinners. Spurgeon, when asked this question, he said, all men are truly sinners, but all men are not equally sinners. They are in the mire together, but they have not all sunk into an equal depth in it. He said, well, Scott, can you prove that from the scriptures? Well, many places, but one verse that I would turn to quickly is Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. This is the great white throne judgment of God. And, and John says this, I saw the dead, great um, and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. So God keeps track of it. Now, all, all those unforgiven of their sins, all of those who do not belong to God, all go to hell. But the Bible is saying here, he's going to judge them according to their deeds. This is why some people have said there's a hotter spot in hell for some. But Paul felt that his sins were worse because he was responsible for death and imprisonment. He was responsible for the suffering of God's church, Christians, that he persecuted. Acts chapter three, 8, verse 3, Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He put them into prison. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, now Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he might, uh, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men or women, he might bring them into Jerusalem bound into Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul's own words, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians 1, 13, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Philippians 3 says he was zealous a persecutor of the church. And listen to this self-incriminating statement that Paul gives at his own trial. Acts chapter 26, verse 11, as he stands before King Agrippa, he says, And I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Now think about this, what that verse said. He compelled others, Christians, strive to do them, to blaspheme Jesus. 
Paul's very horrible past is written down in the Word of God so everybody can read it. He doesn't hold back. And, I, and you look at this and he goes, I'm the foremost or the chief of sinners. And you think about what he did just in that Acts, 29, Acts 26 passage there, that to kill the physical body of a Christian was bad enough, right? But to attempt to destroy their soul by rejecting Jesus. Of course, you can't lose your salvation, but he doesn't know that, right? So his goal is to bring them to blasphemy and be eternally damned. Spurgeon said he forced them under torture to reject Christ whom their hearts loved. And as it were, he was not content to kill them, but to damn them eternally. That was his goal. There seems to be no worse kind of sin than sin that harms God's people. I think that's what he's getting. That's why he's saying I'm the chief, because I hurt God's people. We must soberly consider if if we're guilty of that past, present, or future of, of hurting Christ's church. Third thought, Paul saw himself as a trophy of God's grace. Look at verse 16 with me. For yet this reason I found mercy. <laughs> yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe for eternal life. A man as sinful and as evil as Paul had been now attains the grace of God through mercy. This means that that door was open to, to anyone. That's what he's trying to say. He goes, you think you're bad? You think that God's grace isn't wide enough and deep enough and strong enough to save you? Look at me. Look at me. The grace of God covers the moralist to the murderer. And they'll both be in heaven. And they'll both be in hell. It all depends on the grace of God, doesn't it? Maybe Paul is saying that Christ's patient and forgiveness will never undergo such a severe test as what he put it through. Maybe that's what he's trying to tell Timothy and us. I tested God's grace to the limit so that every sinner that comes to Christ has true hope that their sins are really forgiven. I think that's what Paul's after. He wants you and I to have assurance. He doesn't want us to trust in ourselves. He wants to put our trust in this God who can save to the uttermost, no matter who it is. I think that's a pattern for us as well. When's the last time you told somebody you were a great sinner who God saved? See, there's a pattern here. Tell them you're a wretch. They'll probably wonder, what did this guy or gal do? Tell them you deserved hell. Spin their heads a little bit as they try to think how bad you just are. And then tell them of the great mercy of God. See that in verse 16, the end, it says, so that. Here's the reason. 
in order that, that the patience as an example, that his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe for eternal life, we become so that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ will make, this, make you a trophy of his grace. You'll, you'll follow my example and be a trophy too. You ever thought about that? God saved you for a trophy. And don't think of trophies like we do. <laughs> Every one of us took the almighty, predetermined foreknowledge of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ to claim us for eternity. That's astounding. If you're a believer, that never gets old. That never gets tiring. Meditate on that truth tonight when you go to bed. Lay your head down and think of the grace of God in your life. Last thought. Number four, Paul's outburst of praise to God who saved him. Look at verse 17. This is our Apostle Paul. He, he tried to focus on the depths of his sin for a little bit. And he just couldn't keep doing it. This is a good example, right? If you're one that's, you know, uh, I don't know, you're just always... We call it worm theology. You know, I don't deserve anything. I'm terrible. You know, you feel like crawling steps and bloodying your knees and you just never do enough. That's not Paul. Paul talked about his sinful life long enough. He couldn't take it anymore. He just starts to burst out now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And if you don't get there, you're not saved. I mean, think about it. If salvation never comes to worship, you're not saved. You're just playing some religious game. Because that's what happens. The chief of sinners can't hold himself. He says now to eternal king, so Paul now dwells, of, he, he's not going to dwell any longer about how bad his past is, and he's just captured, he's raptured by this great saving God and, he, and spontaneous praise comes out. He calls him king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. This outburst of praise shows that Paul knew both that God knew him, was powerful, and loved him. He's convinced of it. His past was dead now, and he was a new creation, a new creature. He told us that in 2 Corinthians 5. He burst out in praise. We're new creations. The old has passed away. Let that old man go. He knew God to be eternal king. That means ruling and reigning and complete and power and glory. He knew him to be immortal, existing before anything else existed and being the creator of all things. He knew him to be invisible. How important is that? And what I think Paul's saying is, look, I know a lot about God, but I don't know everything. In fact, there's most things I don't know about him, and I still love him. And even though the secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29, I, he's revealed enough of himself to me that I worship an invisible God. Now think about that. The world can't do that. They want to see something. Put something in front of me and I'll, I'll do it. Do a sign. Do something. Have some kind of miracles happen and then I'll follow your Jesus. No, not save people. We follow an invisible God. That's faith. That stirs my heart when things are troubling and things are difficult. God granted us saving faith that we'll follow an invisible God. 
What a beautiful thing. And yet he didn't stay invisible, did he? He sent his son, a manifestation of his full glory and grace, the exact representation of him, and so we could know him. Notice he says, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. And knowing all about God, he just can't stop praising him. And if you've ever had trouble worshiping God, it's because you either don't know him or you're stuck in sin that needs to be confessed. And I hope the last is the case with you. Because if that's true, and I've told people many, many times who are overwhelmed with their sin, here's the great news, Christ died for sin. If it's somebody else's fault, if you want to blame shift it on whoever, well, you're in a lot of trouble. But if it's sin, we have an answer. Christ died for that. And if he died for it, he forgave it. The description of God here by Paul given to Timothy must have been a great, great encouragement to him. We know he stays in Ephesus. He gets a second letter just before Paul's death. Hebrews refer, refers to a Timothy. We, we're not sure if it's this Timothy. It, it's a really strong possibility it is that he's been released from prison at the end of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but here's what it tells me. He stayed in the race. He kept fighting. That encourages me. So much that he would go to prison for the gospel. And you and I can stay the course. We can stay in the good fight, can't we, when we consider the greatness of God. Consider him. At our next meeting here, we're going to talk about difficult things. You better consider the greatness of God so that your heart doesn't fall. This great God is worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our service. Will you serve him with us together? Father, thank you for this time. We needed some time in the word tonight. We pray that you would strengthen us now as we have a members meeting deal with difficult things, but yet we know still, even in the most difficult things, you are in it. You will bring out good. You love to bring beauty out of ashes. And, and so give us strength. Help us not quit fighting and not, not keep running and not keep the faith. Because there's a crown laid up, not only for Apostle Paul, but for all those who are longing for his appearing. So Lord, strengthen us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.